Chapter Five, Section One of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Five, Robert Louis Stevenson, Section One. If there be a writer of our language at the present moment who has the effect of making us regret the extinction of the pleasant fashion of the literary portrait, it is certainly the bright particular genius whose name I have written at the head of these remarks. Mr. Stevenson fairly challenges portraiture as we pass him on the highway of literature, if that be the road, rather than some wandering sun-checkered by-lane that he may be said to follow, just as the possible model in local attire challenges the painter who wanders through the streets of a foreign town looking for subjects. He gives us new ground to wonder why the effort to fix a face and figure, to seize a literary character, and transfer it to the canvas of the critic, should have fallen into such discredit among us, and have given way to the mere multiplication of little private judgment seats, where the scales and the judicial wig, both of them considerably awry, and not rendered more august by the company of a vicious looking switch have taken the place as the symbols of office of the kindly disinterested palette and brush it has become the fashion to be effective at the expense of the sitter to make some little point or inflict some little dig with a heated party air rather than to catch a talent in the fact follow its line and put a finger on its essence so that the exquisite art of criticism, smothered in grossness, finds itself turned into a question of sides. The critic industriously keeps his score, but it is seldom to be hoped that the author, criminal though he may be, will be apprehended by justice through the handbills given out in the case for it is of the essence of a happy description that it shall have been preceded by a happy observation and a free curiosity, and desuetude, as we may say, has overtaken these amiable, uninvidious faculties, which have not the glory of organs and chairs. We hasten to add that it is not the purpose of these few pages to restore their luster, or to bring back the more penetrating vision of which we lament the disappearance. No individual can bring it back, for the light that we look at things by is, after all, made by all of us. It is sufficient to note in passing that if Mr. Stevenson had presented himself in an age or in a country of portraiture, the painters would certainly each have had a turn at him. The easels and benches would have bristled, the circle would have been close and quick, from the canvas to the sitter, the rising and falling of heads. It has happened to all of us to have gone into a studio, a studio of pupils, and seen the thick cluster of bent backs and the conscious model in the midst. It has happened to us to be struck, or not to be struck, with the beauty or the symmetry of this personage, and to have made some remark which, whether expressing admiration or disappointment, has elicited from one of the attentive workers the exclamation, Character! 
character is what he has. These words may be applied to Mr. Robert Louis Stevenson, in the language of that art which depends most on direct observation. Character, character is what he has. He is essentially a model in the sense of a sitter. I do not mean, of course, in the sense of a pattern or a guiding light. And if the figures who have a life in literature may also be divided into two great classes, we may add that he is conspicuously one of the draped. He would never, if I may be allowed the expression, pose for the nude. There are writers who present themselves before the critic with just the amount of drapery that is necessary for decency. But Mr. Stevenson is not one of these. He makes his appearance in an amplitude of costume. His costume is part of the character of which I just now spoke. It never occurs to us to ask how he would look without it. Before all things, he is a writer with a style, a model with a complexity of curious and picturesque garments. It is by the cut and the color of this rich and becoming frippery, I use the term endearingly, as a painter might, that he arrests the eye and solicits the brush. That is, frankly, half the charm he has for us, that he wears a dress and wears it with courage, with a certain cock of the hat and tinkle of the supergerogatory sword or, in other words, that he is curious of expression and regards the literary form not simply as a code of signals, but as the keyboard of a piano, and as so much plastic material. He has that voice deplored, if we mistake not, by Mr. Herbert Spencer, a manner, a manner for manner's sake it may sometimes doubtless be said, he is as different as possible from the sort of writer who regards words as numbers and a page as the mere addition of them. Much more to carry out our image, the dictionary stands for him as a wardrobe and a proposition as a button for his coat. Mr. William Archer, in an article so gracefully and ingeniously turned that the writer may almost be accused of imitating even while he deprecates, speaks of him as a votary of lightness of touch at any cost, and remarks that he is not only philosophically content, but deliberately resolved, that his readers shall look first to his manner, and only in the second place to his matter. I shall not attempt to gainsay this. I cite it rather for the present, because it carries out our own sense. Mr. Stevenson delights in a style, and his own has nothing accidental or diffident. It is eminently conscious of its responsibilities, and meets them with a kind of gallantry, as if language were a pretty woman, and a person who proposes to handle it had of necessity to be something of a Don Juan. This bravery of gesture is a noticeable part of his nature, and it is rather odd that at the same time a striking feature of that nature should be an absence of care for things feminine. His books are for the most part books without women, and it is not women who fall most in love with them. 
but mr stevenson does not need as we may say a petticoat to inflame him a happy collocation of words will serve the purpose or a singular image or the bright eye of a passing conceit and he will carry off a pretty paradox without so much as a scuffle the tone of letters is in him the tone of letters as distinct from that of philosophy or of those industries whose uses are supposed to be immediate many readers no doubt consider that he carries it too far they manifest an impatience for some glimpse of his moral message they may be heard to ask what it is he proposes to demonstrate with such a variety of paces and graces the main thing that he demonstrates to our own perception is that it is a delight to read him and that he renews this delight by a constant variety of experiment of this anon however and meanwhile it may be noted as a curious characteristic of current fashions that the writer whose effort is perceptibly that of the artist is very apt to find himself thrown on the defensive a work of literature is a form but the author who betrays a consciousness of the responsibilities involved in this circumstance not rarely perceives himself to be regarded as an uncanny personage the usual judgment is that he may be artistic, but that he must not be too much so. That way, apparently, lies something worse than madness. This queer superstition has so successfully imposed itself that the mere fact of having been indifferent to such a danger constitutes in itself an originality. How few they are in number, and how soon we could name them, the writers of English prose at the present moment, the quality of whose prose is personal, expressive, renewed at each attempt. The state of things that one would have expected to be the rule has become the exception, and an exception for which, most of the time, an apology appears to be thought necessary. A mill that grinds with regularity and with a certain commercial fineness, that is the image suggested by the manner of a good many of the fraternity. They turn out an article for which there is a demand, they keep a shop for a speciality, and the business is carried on in accordance with a useful, well-tested prescription. It is just because he has no speciality that Mr. Stevenson is an individual, and because his curiosity is the only receipt by which he produces. Each of his books is an independent effort, a window opened to a different view. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is as dissimilar as possible from Treasure Island. Virginibus Puerisque has nothing in common with the new Arabian Nights, and I should never have supposed a child's garden of verses to be from the hand of the author of Prince Otto. Though Mr. Stevenson cares greatly for his phrase, as every writer should who respects himself and his art, it takes no very attentive reading of his volumes to show that it is not what he cares for most and that he regards an expressive style only after all as a means 
it seems to me the fault of mr archer's interesting paper that it suggests too much that the author of these volumes considers the art of expression as an end an ingenious game of words he finds that Mr. Stevenson is not serious, that he neglects a whole side of life, that he has no perception and no consciousness of suffering, that he speaks as a happy but heartless pagan, living only in his senses, which the critic admits to be exquisitely fine, and that in a world full of heaviness he is not sufficiently aware of the philosophic limitations of mere technical skill in sketching these aberrations mr archer himself by the way displays anything but ponderosity of hand he is not the first reader and he will not be the last who shall have been irritated by mr stevenson's jauntiness that jauntiness is an essential part of his genius, but to my sense it ceases to be irritating. It indeed becomes positively touching, and constitutes an appeal to sympathy and even to tenderness, when once one has perceived what lies beneath the dancing tune to which he mostly moves. Much as he cares for his phrase, he cares more for life and for a certain transcendently lovable part of it. He feels, as it seems to us, and that is not given to everyone. This constitutes a philosophy which Mr. Archer fails to read between his lines. The respectable, desirable moral which many a reader doubtless finds that he neglects to point he does not feel everything equally, by any manner of means, but his feelings are always his reasons. He regards them, whatever they may be, as sufficiently honorable, does not disguise them in any names or colors, and looks at whatever he meets in the brilliant candlelight that they shed. As in his extreme artistic vivacity, he seems really disposed to try everything he has tried once, by way of a change, to be inhuman, and there is a hard glitter about Prince Otto which seems to indicate that in this case, too, he has succeeded, as he has done in most of the feats that he has attempted but Prince Otto is even less like his other productions than his other productions are like each other. The part of life which he cares for most is youth, and the direct expression of the love of youth is the beginning and the end of his message. His appreciation of this delightful period amounts to a passion, and a passion, in the age in which we live, strikes us on the whole as a sufficient philosophy. It ought to satisfy Mr. Archer, and there are writers who press harder than Mr. Stevenson, on whose behalf no such moral motive can be alleged. Mingled with this almost equal love of a literary surface, it represents a real originality. This combination is the keynote of Mr. Stevenson's faculty, and the explanation of his perversities. The feeling of one's teens, and even of an earlier period, for the delights of crawling and almost of the rattle are embodied in A Child's Garden of Verses, 
and the feeling for happy turns, these, in the last analysis, and his sense of a happy turn is of the subtlest, are the corresponding halves of his character. If Prince Otto and Dr. Jekyll left me a clearer field for the assertion, I would say that everything he has written is a direct apology for boyhood. Or rather, for it must be confessed that Mr. Stevenson's tone is seldom apologetic, a direct rhapsody on the age of heterogeneous pockets. Even members of the very numerous class who have held their breath over Treasure Island may shrug their shoulders at this account of the author's religion, but it is none the less a great pleasure, the highest reward of observation, to put one's hand on a rare illustration, and Mr. Stevenson is certainly rare. What makes him so is the singular maturity of the expression that he has given to young sentiments. He judges them, measures them, sees them from the outside, as well as entertains them. He describes credulity with all the resources of experience, and represents a crude stage with infinite ripeness. In a word, he is an artist accomplished even to sophistication, whose constant theme is the unsophisticated. Sometimes, as in Kidnapped, the art is so ripe that it lifts even the subject into the general air. The execution is so serious that the idea, the idea of a boy's romantic adventures, becomes a matter of universal relations. What he prizes most in the boy's ideal is the imaginative side of it, the capacity for successful make-believe. The general freshness in which this is a part of the gloss seems to him the divinest thing in life, considerably more divine, for instance, than the passion usually regarded as the supremely tender one. The idea of making believe appeals to him much more than the idea of making love. That delightful little book of rhymes, The Child's Garden, commemorates from beginning to end the picturing, personifying, dramatizing faculty of infancy, the view of life from the level of the nursery fender. The volume is a wonder for the extraordinary vividness with which it reproduces early impressions. A child might have written it if a child could see childhood from the outside, for it would seem that only a child is really near enough to the nursery floor. And what is peculiar to Mr. Stevenson is that it is his own childhood he appears to delight in, and not the personal presence of little darlings. Oddly enough, there is no strong implication that he is fond of babies, he doesn't speak as a parent, or an uncle, or an educator. He speaks as a contemporary, absorbed in his own game. That game is almost always a vision of dangers and triumphs, and if emotion with him infallibly resolves itself into memory, so memory is an evocation of throbs and thrills and suspense. He has given to the world the romance of boyhood, as others have produced that of the peerage and the police and the medical profession.
This amounts to saying that what he is most curious of in life is heroism, personal gallantry, if need be, with a manner, or a banner, though he is also abundantly capable of enjoying it when it is artless. The delightful exploits of Jim Hawkins in Treasure Island are unaffectedly performed, but none the less the finest action is the better for a piece of purple, as the author remarks in the paper on the English admirals in Virginibus Puerisque, a paper of which the moral is largely that we learn to desire a grand air in our heroes, and such a knowledge of the human stage as shall make them put the dot on their own eyes and leave us in no suspense as to when they mean to be heroic. The love of brave words as well as brave deeds, which is simply Mr. Stevenson's essential love of style, is recorded in this little paper with a charming, slightly sophistical ingenuity. They served their guns merrily when it came to fighting, and they had the readiest ear for a bold, honorable sentiment of any class of men the world ever produced. The author goes on to say that most men of high destinies have even high-sounding names. Alan Breck in Kidnapped is a wonderful picture of the union of courage and swagger. The little Jacobite adventurer, a figure worthy of Scott at his best, and representing the highest point that Mr. Stevenson's talent has reached, shows us that a marked taste for tawdry finery, tarnished and tattered, some of it indeed by ticklish occasions, is quite compatible with a perfectly high metal. Alan Breck is at bottom a study of the love of glory, carried out with extreme psychological truth. When the love of glory is of an inferior order, the reputation is cultivated rather than the opportunity. But when it is a pure passion, the opportunity is cultivated for the sake of the reputation." Mr. Stevenson's kindness for adventurers extends even to the humblest of all, the mountebank and the strolling player, or even the peddler whom he declares that, in his foreign travels, he is habitually taken for, as we see in the whimsical apology for vagabonds, which winds up an inland voyage. The hungry conjurer, the gymnast whose maillot is loose, have something of the glamour of the hero, inasmuch as they too pay with their person. To be even one of the outskirters of art leaves a fine stamp on a man's countenance. That is the kind of thing that reconciles me to life, a ragged, tippling, incompetent old rogue, with the manners of a gentleman and the vanity of an artist, to keep up his self-respect. What reconciles Mr. Stevenson to life is the idea that in the first place it offers the widest field that we know of for odd doings, and that in the second these odd doings are the best of pegs to hang a sketch in three lines, or a paradox in three pages. End of chapter 5, section 1, Robert Louis Stevenson